Well, Tim, um, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Uptime Punks. Um, this is a little bit of a different one. We're getting um, two people to come and speak about the great innovative days and great innovative ideas which they have and um, how they see the data center of the future. This comes from one of the biggest data center suppliers. And well, I, I don't know, Tim, can we add anything to else to it? Um no, I, I, I think it's fine. Uh, it's uh, it's not all but close. And, yeah, it's almost what I It's close. And just listen to it. And um, to give you guys a little bit of teaser, uh, we're speaking about data centers in space. Enjoy. Here we go. So welcome back to another episode of the Uptime Punks. Um, we we were looking for the new data center of the future and some new innovations and everything. And uh, we reached out to our friends at Schneider Electric. And then we said, you know what, let's bring two of the most innovative and smartest, guy from, smartest guys from over there over here to the podcast. So I would like to welcome uh, Stephen Carlini and Carsten Baumann. Um, Stephen is the Vice President of Innovations at Data Center at Schneider Electric, and Carsten is the Director of Strategic Initiatives and Solution Architects. So welcome to the both of you. Um, it's a double double guest, double episode. Um, let's see where we're going to go with this today. Uh, looking forward to it. How are you both doing? Well, uh, this is Carsten. Yeah, I'm doing rather well. Thank you so much for asking. It's great to be here on the show, and uh, so hopefully it's going to be interesting, and um, I'm looking forward to it. Is it for you guys the first time on a podcast? No, no this no. is definitely not, as we would say here in the United States, not our first rodeo. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's good if it's not your first rodeo. So um, <laughs> we, we, we normally ask our guests a couple of questions. So I'm going to, Stephen, I'm going to start with you. Um, what was your first mobile phone and your first computer? Can you recall it? Yes, my first computer actually, believe it or not, was an Atari 512. Um, it was a, with GEM operating system and it was very, very intuitive. It was one of the first ones that actually had GUIs and it ran word processing, it ran spreadsheets. And the funny part is, you know, back then, you know, IBM's ruled the world and my dad actually worked for IBM. And he was just appalled when I bought this Atari. The best, the other part of the Atari is that we would play all the Atari games, natively. So, and it was, and it was all floppies, you know, no hard drive. So, all the, all the things you wanted to do, you had to load in the discs. Some of them had one disc, some of them had ten discs. Okay, and. Uh, Carsten, what about you? What was your first experience? I mean, uh, so Carsten grew up in Germany. We we figured that one out already because Tim, of course, was like, oh, this is a very dynamic name. Um, do, do, do you have some German origins? And of course, um, Carsten replied with the Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, accent and said, yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> I moved here 25 years ago to become a governor. But uh, yeah, <laughs> anyways, okay. Carsten. I'm going to leave that German accent at least as much as I can out of the conversation today. How's that? But uh, to answer your question about my first mm -hmm. computer experience, I had a Sinclair CX81, I think it was called. And um, I was in my early teens somehow. And um, so, yeah, I, I programmed a, um, a traffic application. So, like, you know, an intersection with, uh, uh, and it was basic. So, 
So that was my first computer experience, and I uh, was really fascinated by it. And um, my first phone was actually, I think it was a Motorola 0.2 watts, one of those flip phones. Um, and I was so proud of it. Uh, and I think this was in 1999. It was my first personal phone. Um, so that was uh, that was my kind of early um, steps into you know the, the connected world and the computers and so forth. And uh, I think we we all know we have come a long way since then. Is that how you found your passion in computers from back then, or what brought you into the industry? Well, it, you know, in all fairness, it always fascinated me, right? So the idea of computers, and then um, you know, when when I saw the possibilities, and my parents they had a small shop, you know, similar to. Um, you know, like what today would be considered be a Best Buy, one of those big electronic stores, and and everything was done manually. And I told my parents, look, you guys need to get a computer uh, because everything will be so much easier. And my parents, you know, they're they now in their late 70s, early 80s, and and they were like, absolutely not, you know. So we will not going to do this. So they they were like, they, they had this reluctance, and I I didn't understand why would someone not love that. I mean, this is just the the best thing ever, right? It's going to be so fantastic. Not even knowing, having no idea back then where this is all going to go. But I was always fascinated by technology. I'm an electronic engineer uh, by trade or by education, and um, so yeah. So it's 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 a it's a fascinating kind of when I think about the possibilities and now the the acceleration from what was done, you know, like 30 wow. years ago or 40 years ago to where we are now. And now we're just seeing this hockey stick acceleration about capabilities and possibilities. It's phenomenal. So it's really phenomenal. Okay, thank you. And Stephen, what about you? What was your, what brought you into the industry of tech? You said already that your father worked at IBM. Um, was that then the thing that sort yeah. of um, put the spark in there and inspired you? Yeah, that, that was interesting. And I want to, I want to say on back to the, back to the PCs. When I used, when I used to present uh, one of the uh, U.S. chief of staffs for the president was was talking. I think he was in charge of technology. And he said the worldwide market for personal computers is less than 10, 10 units <laughs> at the time. So there was he was a non-believer. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. When I was young, when I was a, a young boy, I think I was about ten years old. I went to uh, went with my father to one of uh, the IBM campuses. I think it was in New York. And he brought me to the what they called the uh, computer room, which was actually uh, he brought me to the computer room, and it was underground, and it was basically a uh, a bomb shelter. It, it it was all this sensitive information. At, at the time, the computers were mainly used to uh, keep track of people and their information. So you know, it was going from like these physical records to these records kept electronically. And at the time, they thought uh, it was a big target. So they were building these these computer rooms or data centers underground with these massive, you know, ten foot, you know, cement walls all around it, and it was it was it was quite amazing. And we saw, you know, the first you know first early kind of mainframe computers that that were in there. Did it did it did it look back then like in the science fiction movies where you walk in, it's like a big button, and then it's like these little screens, like you know, if you would watch a Star Wars movie now, like one of the first ones that came out, is that how it looked like back then? I mean, it must have looked for you like as a as a you were a child or a teenager back then. It must have been like um, yeah, out of a, another planet, isn't it? Yeah, but there there weren't a lot of displays. It was you know there were mainly you know these metal boxes and and you know card readers and, and that kind of thing. So it was like the very early ones. 
There were only zeros and ones to begin yeah. with. Why, why, why do you want to look at those? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I came later on when it was like Command and Conquer, Age of Empires, strategy games, and the flight oh, simulators. Yeah. So I come more from the, I come then already in the fun, I would say the fun generation of computers. You guys were probably more like the, how would you say, try to do something useful with it. Uh, like Carsten said, he was trying to program a traffic light. Um, where, where, where was the traffic light which you were trying to program? Was it somewhere? Um... <laughs> oh no, this was just this was just a science project in in, in school. So, um, so that's okay. what I did there. <laughs> it was not really used in real time, you know, or in real world applications. So, yeah. just a science project. Yeah. Um, let me ask you both as well. Um, maybe Stephen, we start with you. Um, the podcast is called the Uptime Punks. So how would you define uptime for yourself and for your clients? There's probably two different uh, answers for that one or maybe even the same one. What is uptime to you? That's a that's a great question because, you know, back in the earlier days, you know, anytime your data center was down, um, it had to be a complete outage for, for it to be, you know, considered down. Now, Uptime, you know, you know, it could have smaller pieces, different applications. That so, you know, uptime is 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 the, you know, to me, it's the realization of you know being active and being able to run your workloads and processes unabated would be would be my definition. Carsten, what about you? Well, you know, I see uptime similar, but I. Uh, I'm looking at it from two different perspectives. One is reliability. Um, so the equipment I have to guarantee or to help me in my uptime, you know, how how reliable is it? And then the second part of that is resiliency. So if something does or is not reliable or it's not operating reliably, what is my resiliency strategy to actually um, overcome this, you know, to maintain my uptime? And then ultimately, when I think about uptime, you know, we're always talking about the how many nines do we have, right? Is it four nines, two nines, six nines, you know, whatever it is, and and how can I ensure that my operation keeps being up and running and providing the services, you know, which either I need for myself in the organization or which I promise to my customers and service level agreements. So I see it as a combination of reliability and resiliency. And there's of course different strategies and so forth. Yeah, yeah my favorite my favorite uptime story is um you may have heard of it. It was in the U.S. a couple of years ago. It was very public. Amazon Web Services actually actually went down, and the reason the whole, you know, the whole almost the whole cloud arch architecture went down, and the reason it went down is because they had this medium voltage switch gear that was incorrectly adjusted, and it tripped. This it took down the entire data center. Um, not just one data, it's the whole data center campus. So it's it's interesting that data centers used to be much much smaller, and we never had to deal with things like medium voltage switch gear, you know, ten thousand volt, you know, range switch gear. But when something like that happens, first of all, you have to identify that that happened, and the second thing you have to do is you have to know who to call because you can't just walk into a medium voltage switchgear application. That's why there's lines and cages around it. You get too close to it, you'll, 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 it'll arc over and it'll, it'll vaporize you. So you have to wear these special suits. So uh, it wasn't part of the standard operating procedure if this happened. So they ended up calling the headquarters of the company that manufactured the switchgear 
and you know asking you know who can we who can we talk to to reset that's why they were down for a day and a half so it's it just shows the criticality of you know having you know standard operating but also having uh remonitoring of, of the power systems so you know the you know the old pot those things hardly ever trip but when they do you know you have to know you know which one is tripped and and what to do about it um before we get into where data centers are moving to and what's the future of data centers when we start speaking about these things um there's just one last question from my side. Um, everybody experienced a lockdown in the last couple of months, and I would like to know from you, Carsten, first, what was your lockdown gadget? What kept you sort of um, sane during this time? Was there any purchase you made that gave you some fun and joy working from home? <laughs> well, I think electronically, I would say it was Netflix and Amazon Prime Video, right? So which kind of allowed me to kind of like, um, you know, get the shows and whatever and watch all of this. But uh, on a more serious note, no, actually, it was my dogs, you know, like being happy and enjoying them and, um, you know, going on walks. And I live in Colorado right now, right at the Rocky Mountains, and uh, it's a beautiful place. So I'm very fortunate, uh, you know, to, to be here and uh, to be in nature and enjoying it. So that get, kind of keeps me sane. But I have to say, it somehow felt and still feels to a certain extent, you know, like Groundhog Day, the Bill Murray movie. Um, you know, where he, um, you know, every day he wakes up and it's the same over and over and over again, right? So maybe it's the, it's a different conversation, a different podcast, you know, but it feels the same, right? So it's, that's, um, uh, it's kind of a little, little tricky, but, you know, we, we all try to do the best, right? It's our own personal resiliency story. So it's uh, Netflix, Amazon, and my dogs. Hmm. Okay. Steven, what about you? Yeah. So I, I was assuming I would have a lot more free time since I wouldn't be driving, spending time in the car. So I, I bought a guitar finally oh. and, and I started to learn how to play, started learning some chords and I was making some good progress. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, being locked down, you know, I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden the workday moved from, you know, eight to five thirty to uh you know six in the morning to, to seven at night or eight at night kind of thing so it's been it's been quite a change in uh in uh you know dynamics um in, in the work yeah, environment but work i you know in between changed, in between calls sometimes i will still get the guitar and i i played no, but you know a couple of it, it, very very basic songs like almost, but uh i'm hoping after the pandemic to have like personal uh personal lessons you know in person so in between calls you're still trying to play the guitar sometimes sometimes and, yes <laughs> that's good uh okay so speaking about the data center of the future um i mean data centers are critical structures and i think they were evolving um maybe the world was standing still the last 12 months but um, data centers weren't standing still and sustainability, scope one, scope two, scope three, so many things are emerging left, right and center. And I mean, if there's one company that's involved around the globe and um, this is not to butter you guys up, um, I mean, we've done, we done a podcast in Australia where you guys are putting some containers in the middle of the desert um, with kangaroos and wallabies running around or if it's in India or if it's in Central Europe or of course, like you guys are in the US, um, you guys are just leading from the front and you're a brand to be recognized and also a brand which is very established in the data center industry. So hence why um, we would have 
wanted you guys to come and talk here about um, how do you see the data centers of the future? And um, yeah, maybe you guys can give us a little bit of input and how do you see it developing? Yeah, I think um, one of the things, you know, which I, when I think about the data center of the future, um, I see like four uh, succinct pillars, you know, on which that future of the data center is based on. And uh, this is around number one, sustainability, number two, efficiency overall, uh, number three, uh, being adaptive and flexible in the design and uh, in the services, you know, how to deploy it. And then the fourth one is actually going back to what we talked about uptime, you know, it's resiliency. Um, so, and this means like predictive analytics, you know, um, uh, links between, uh, you know, the data analysis and field services, you know, uh, you know, high power reliability. So these are the four key pillars, the way I'm looking at it, sustainability, efficiency, adaptive, um, and, and resiliency. So let's 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 maybe start with the design process because I I I think I have the feeling that there's some paradigm chains coming up um, in regards to the design. So there's the old design process, um, but there is nowadays data centers. Um, I guess you you've said it in a conversation before that this whole raised floor thing, uh, batteries in the gray space isn't really a thing anymore. So. Can you maybe elaborate on how you see the data center design changing and disrupting? Yeah, yeah, I think you're talking about, yeah, in, in, the, in the old days, you know, data centers were very much, uh, you know, custom, you know, and as they say uh, in the UK, how do they call the custom uh, bespoke? <laughs> it's a word that's not very common in the US, but uh, bespoke, they're all, they're all designed to be different, and every customer does want a, a different data center. So the process would be, you know, here's here's what we think our capacity is or should be, and bring in a a you know an, an architect or a data center designer and come up with different proposals. Uh, then go for budgeting approval, and then come back and do much you know different iterations. So you know at Schneider we thought you know you know. And, and these data centers, you know, evolved very, very slowly over the years. There was there was people that were specialized in UPSs. People were specialized in cooling. Uh, there was there was um, uh, these large, you know, three phase UPSs that had, uh, you know, uh, wet cell batteries and special battery rooms. There was all these grounding grids and grounding grids, you know, were part of the original data centers, but you know. You know, 20 years after grounding grids were needed, people were still designing those in. So at Schneider, we thought, you know, why not just come up with some designs that we think are going to be common and look at some of the things that we thought were, you know, maybe, you know, not as, as you know, efficient as they should be and change them. So things like raised floors, we thought, you know, those are you know, why does every data center need a raised floor? Why couldn't you put your equipment on the raised floor and run your power cables overhead? Uh, the problem with raised floor being they're extremely expensive and complicated. And after, you know, a couple of refreshes, there's tons of power cables blocking the airflow, which they're, you know, they're designed to enhance airflow, not block the airflow. So we came up with 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 uh, uh, solutions where we, where we pre-configured all of the systems, the racks, the cooling, the power distribution, the UPS, all the physical infrastructure that, that you would need 
and the management systems, the decent management systems, all packaging it all together um, as a pre-configured system that you can order. And one of the biggest problems with the, the old kind of bespoke system is that, you know, you would build, you know, 99% of the data center and then, oh, well, we, we, we forgot to order some parts or some parts are, are not available and you were basically dead in the water. So taking a complete, you know, physical infrastructure solution approach and, you know, make, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and they'll be able to deliver that as a complete solution and also have performance specifications as part of it gives you very, very um, low risk. There's low risk in the cost. There's low risk in the deployment time and there's low risk in the performance. And then we decided, yeah, we can take this the next the next step and start, you know, building some of these data centers in factories and prefabricating the entire systems for more drop drop in place type type of solutions. And those are becoming more and more popular right now. Uh, they're mm -hmm. really starting to, to ramp up in popularity. Yeah. Yeah, just to add on what um, Stephen was just mentioning, when we look from Shine Electric at the prefab versus stick build, right? So uh, in prefab, it uh, can have multiple, um, you know, sizes and whether it's mechanical, electrical, or even the white space in prefabrication, um, you know, we see a growth, a compounded annual growth rate over the next several years, you know, uh, that prefab uh, outpaces stick build by three times, you know, so mm -hmm. as fast. Uh, and I think it has a lot to do with, you know, what uh, Stephen mentioned earlier in the initial design process, you know, where you got the architects and the designers and the budgets and the approvals and, you know, and so it took a long time to deploy something actually from conception to actually commencing it. And nowadays with prefab, I think because many customers want to see, we need to be more adaptive, more flexible and faster to the market. So we don't have the same two or three years, you know, um, from the conception to the commencement but rather than like, you know, we want to get this done in six to eight months. So how can we do this? How can we paralyze the, um, not paralyze, in parallel um, uh, design things, manufacturing things, you know, instead of having one trade after the other coming on site. And that's where Prefab really helps to, to bring these kind of new technologies and these new capacities, you know, uh, online much faster and more effective at a higher quality, at a better, more reliable quality. Um, you know, and 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 in a, in a better time frame. Okay. So, what 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 role does modularity um, play into all this? Because I, as I understand it, I don't have a definition. Maybe you have, but as I understand it, it's just the fact of being able to interchange. I don't know USB system modules and, but. Do you think that this white space, gray space distinction is still valid? And do you think that someday we will have? like just a module where white space and gray space like batteries and and then the actual IT infrastructure are moved together in a module put in put out take it in take it out how, how do you see this modularity in, in all that process well i i this is a this is a this is a fully loaded question you bring up here right <laughs> um so i think modularity can mean many things right so depending on how we look at it uh, I think many of the data centers which are designed and deployed today are actually in a modular fashion, right? So even if I or a customer builds a 100 megawatt data center, they don't build one monolithic 100 megawatt data center, right? So these are modules of smaller sizes and rinse and repeat, you know, maybe the sweet spot is one megawatt or 1.5 megawatts, whatever it is, and they build it out both mechanically or 
mechanically, electrically, as well as from the white space. So that's some form of modularity, right? And then we can ask ourselves, the subsystems in each of those, let's say, electrical rooms, you know, how can we make those modular, right? So to, to again, bring it to the market faster and to deploy it faster. Um, and then we can look at the actually components themselves. So when we, Schneider Electric, look at the, you know, the future of the UPS technology, it's a modular architecture, a modular design, so that you know when one electronic component fails in a sub-module element, you can actually take it out and replace it. So this goes back to our resiliency strategy and our uptime discussion. So modularity starts on the sub-component level, and then let's say on a box level, and then on the uh, the, the, the trade itself, whether me mechanically, electrically, uh, and then we are looking at modular data center blocks and builds, you know, in order to scale this up. And then we should, of course, and maybe later on, we will talk about, you know, the whole notion about edge data centers, which is not a hundred megawatt data center, but it's a small data center capacity deployed, you know, rapidly in, in, in thousands and thousands of them, you know, across uh, different geographical regions. So we had it, we had it on the podcast last time, um, Swain from, from Green Mountain. And um, I know that, that Schneider's played a large, large part in, uh, in making this story successful. Um, can you give us some insights on how, how your approach helped to build this, um, uh, what, what is it? Tier three PUE 1.2 um, underground old ammunition uh, store data center, which is like admired all around the world. <laughs> yeah, Steve, you want to talk about this? Yeah, Green Mountain is, you know, one of the one of the early success stories for, you know, kind of the the uh, sustainable. It's kind of like the sustainable, uh, you know, sustainable benchmark for for other data centers. They've done a they did a great job, um, and Schneider helped, you know, day one as as, as a collaboration partner, um, you know, designing the data center to to maximize. Um, you know, renewable power and, and reuse some of the, you know, natural resources that were available, you know, underground. So, you know, you know, data centers have been, you know, have been, you know, have been, um, as I said, growing, you know, over the years. And the the use of, of you know, resources, you know, you know, power resources, water resources has really, you know, has really, uh, you know, grown with the, the digital economy. So, so you know, as we talked about earlier, the, the need to become more and more sustainable in your designs. And this is one that was kind of taken to the extremes, uh, but it's, it's you know, something that, that uh, other companies are actually, you know, trying to replicate. So I don't know if you want to add any more, Carson. <laughs> Yeah, I think you know the whole notion about sustainability, and um, it has really taken off dramatically, specifically in the last you know maybe two years. Um, not only in terms of like data center companies trying to buy uh, sustainable energy portfolio through renewable energy credits and carbon offsets, or in some other states you know cap and trade programs, um, in order to help them to become more sustainable, because. 
I mean, depending on wh whomever research um, study we want to believe, right? So the data centers in their, um, you know, dramatic growth is con or are consuming more and more electricity. And, um, you know, again, depending who we believe, anywhere between one and four or five percent of the global energy consumption is being consumed by data centers. And as a result, you know, there is more and more visibility and uh, a high demand in terms of making those operations more sustainable. And I think collectively, you know, in the data center industry, we have done a tremendous job uh, over maybe perhaps the last decade to make them more efficient. And this is where the PoE comes in, right? So instead of having a PoE of 2.5 or more, now we are developing data centers and deploying data centers, you know, with a PoE of 1.2. So where the really the majority of all the power goes to the actually compute and the networking and the storage versus on all the ancillary services, specifically like the cooling. And, um, and then, and of course, when we ask ourselves, if I have reached a almost a, a point of diminishing return, you know, it makes it harder and harder to make them even more um, energy efficient. So now the next question, the next frontier is like the electricity, how I'm going to use it and where is it coming from? And how can I leverage, you know, renewable energy resources to actually really make it green? And I'm very happy, you know, and we've heard that, you know, large hyperscale companies make very large pledges about, you know, carbon neutrality by 2030 or even being carbon negative, uh, less reliant on diesel fuel uh, generation for backup. So becoming more and more sustainable, uh, I think, is a real key component. And then, of course, there's different ways of implementing it, you know, on-site, off-site, you know, um, and, and, and these are different strategies. They all feed them back into the resiliency story. Um, so, but sustainability has certainly taken off and I think the train is moving faster. The train has certainly left the station and it's moving faster and faster mm. and more and more companies concern themselves now with how can we become more sustainable and we at Schneider Electric, not only have we recently been um, named as like the most sustainable company globally, but um, you know, I mean, we do it ourselves for our own operations, but we also help our customers and we have specific sustainability services around it to actually help our customers on that journey. Do you believe that sustainability and resiliency are conflicting goals? Actually, I don't think so. I think they're complementary. Um, so, you know, when I think of um, the traditional data center design has is an off taker of the utility, right? Buying the electricity at whatever rate, at whatever quantity and quality. Um, and then there's a resiliency strategy which is always deployed, which was uh, a diesel backup generator typically. So if I have more and more um, diverse um, methodologies to produce electricity for my consum consumption, maybe it might be a combination of natural gas today, uh, and um, you know, and maybe tomorrow I can move into um, biogas or even hydrogen. Uh, so this, and I can have different um, uh, technologies, whether this might be fuel cells or micro turbines or CHP plants. We see at times. Uh, in combination. So now my portfolio of energy generation is not only depending on one technology, but rather than multiple and perhaps even multiple fuel sources of which the utility is one of them. So as a result, you know, by having a more diverse portfolio, I'm becoming more resilient. So sustainability, including battery energy storage, photovoltaic where it makes sense and maybe wind. Um, so therefore more 
engines, more fuel sources, you know, become more resilient and more sustainable. So I see they actually go on hand in hand together and they do not uh, contradict each other. Okay. Stephen, what's your take? Yeah, I think, you know, you know, Green Mountain, you know, is, 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 you know, connected to, you know, hydropower, which is, which is, you know, you know, probably the most sustainable of all the, <laughs> of all the resources. But, you know, we do see a movement and we do have services to help people, you know, locate data centers based on their, on their sustainability goals and their carbon footprint goals. So, so not only, you know, are data centers being located close to, you know, hydropower, but you see some of the larger companies buying, buying land in the, what they call, you know, the wind corridor, you know, they're buying, you know, thousands of acres with the, with the idea of setting up. And a lot of them have set up large, uh, large wind turbines and large solar fields. So they're setting it up. And like Carson was saying, they're supplementing it with, you know, power purchase agreements so that uh, their footprint is, you know, very, mm. very uh, sustainable. And it was funny, you know, you know, I think it was 11 years ago where, where Greenpeace started to, to, you know, their mission was to expose all these nasty, you know, data center companies and their power usage. And they started reporting on it. And then and the industry reacted very, very quickly, very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. So what, what the, what yeah. the, you know, the green click, you know, books ended up doing was uh, exposing the fact that the data centers were, and I, the IT industry was probably the, the greenest of all the industries in the world. Yeah. yeah. And some of the commitments are, are crazy, <laughs> like, like the Microsoft commitment, not only are they going to be, you know, net zero, but they are going to be, they're going to retract all yeah, the carbon in the atmosphere. And, you know, how are they going to do that? Um, they're saying they're talking about uh, these 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 uh, this vegetation that they're going to uh, uh, foster in these bogs, like in New Orleans and places like that, that have these these natural bogs, and these this vegetation is going to uh, it's going to suck in the high the uh, not high, the hard carbon from from the environment and store it underground, you know, in these bogs, mm. you know, forever. So it's just amazing some of the things that that, that are going to happen. So um, it's just a <laughs> I think there's also something with space um, because yeah. when we spoke to Microsoft um, because we have Mark Monroe on the on the podcast oh, yeah. and uh, yeah we will see how they how they shoot I, and I was like and I was like because, because it was quite interesting because I was like oh you guys are probably exploring even things like space and you just stay quiet because so he, couldn't he, comment. he said no comment that's what he said and he said no comment and I was like well there's so much rubbish flying around and then he was like well it's actually only every six square miles yeah. you have um, some space rubbish so he's like actually there's a lot of space up there oh interesting so you even know the figures and the stats around it okay so um <laughs> microsoft has something in the pipeline Mi up there. microsoft's a good um keyword because they they it ties in what you've said cost before about and diversifying the um energy sources and i guess resiliency also comes from a stable and continuous grid and what they're doing with Wattenfall, you know, I, I, I'm sure you're aware of the project, like this real-time monitoring of where the uh, energy is coming from at the moment, I guess, will uh, will take us huge steps into this direction towards sustainable resiliency or resilient sustainability. I don't know which one you prefer, but 
Um, yeah, but let's still talk about some of the uh, disruptions um, uh, that could happen in the data center space. Um, so, you mean what, from what a technology perspective or from an applications perspective? Because I see both happening. Yeah. So go on. <laughs> well, from from a technology's perspective, you know, I would say a disruption is um, the clear driver towards sustainability, right? And um, um, not only you know how we are sourcing renewable or sustainable energy, but uh, potentially how we can leverage even on-site um, renewable resources, you know, that be part of it. Uh, one of the large co-location providers, you know, with a, a significant operation in northern Nevada, um, you know, they, they are currently putting in, you know, like a 240 megawatt of uh, solar field uh, combined. Sorry, uh, sorry, I'm correcting my numbers here. A uh, hundred megawatt of solar fields and a 240 megawatt hours of battery energy storage system, right? Which is a huge microgrid basically behind the meter, and they're utilizing something called energy as a service to you know externally finance it, so they don't have to put any capital out there. And it's been already uh, written about, and so it's publicly available on the, on the um, you know uh, to 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 research it. Uh, but what I'm seeing here is like. From a technology perspective, you know, so the sustainability, energy sourcing, and generation, you know, is really uh, something that really drives it. And then, um, from a from a, an applications perspective, um, yes, we do see that um, more and more data centers are being built, and they're becoming bigger and bigger. Uh, so maybe you know, when five years ago, somebody would said, "Oh, I'm planning on building a 50 megawatt data center." You know, that was kind of like big news. Uh, today, nobody's actually, you know, being surprised anymore by it because we're building 100 plus, you know, 150, 200 megawatt data centers. Now, but at the same time, we're seeing a huge shift, not shift, but in addition to uh, smaller data centers, what we call at the edge, and there's multiple edges, whether this is uh, within the telecommunication service providers, whether this is within the manufacturing facilities, whether this is within uh, the cities themselves, you know, to plan for all the new digital infrastructure coming along. Um, so, so I think there's two disruptions, not really disruptions. They're like, they are additions, right? Um, so the data center is becoming bigger and more sustainable. And at the same time, we're seeing a huge proliferation, you know, on smaller data centers closer to where the data has been either generated or where it's being consumed. So that's what, what, what I define the edge. Is that the future, the edge? Because people say it's like a pendulum, right? It goes from big to yeah, edge. Is it trendy? Is it, is it, is it just a trendy, a, a sexy word? It's no. the edge. Um, no. and, then, and then in 10 years, it's going to be mega structures again. Um, oh, how do you guys see it? Um, yeah, Stephen. It's a long, it's a long history of the, the pendulum shifting back and forth from distributed to centralized. But this time it's different. This time I think uh, we're starting to see the the extension of the the cloud providers getting closer to the users. Uh, we're seeing uh, new tech, new communication technologies coming out like Wi-Fi six and five G that are going to open up the the bandwidth for a lot of these new applications. The world is changing, becoming more uh, contactless, touch-free. Um, so a lot of the applications are going to be highly dependent on, on, on being able to process large amounts of data locally. So there's, you know, 
facial recognition is a good example. Anything using, you know, in agriculture, those are using high definition cameras. Uh, Industry 4.0 with, with with high definition cameras for uh, quality control. Anything that's using high definition cameras, you know, for any kind of uh, process, you don't want to send the data a long a long way, process it, and send it back. Number one, you couldn't do it in time, and, and it would just be way too slow. So we're, we're seeing the proliferation of processing that's coming to the edge. As Carson said, we're seeing, you know, two, two areas that are growing, the very, very large data center, the very small one. I see the small data center at the edge for processing. I see the large, the large uh, you know, central core data centers more as, you know, data lakes and doing AI analytics for processing, you know, large amounts of data and the small ones for doing real time. And then you have, like I talked about, the Internet giants moving their their cloud services closer and closer to the users and also um, telco is also going to have to extend for high band uh, 5g or millimeter wave 5g is heavily dependent on edge data center infrastructure so if that takes off uh, you know the edge the edge is gonna it's gonna happen and it's gonna be i think here to stay yeah and i think i think it's a, a really a hybrid uh, deployment now yep. right so so there's a, uh, a concept project happening in Austin, Texas right now where, um, you know, you have something's called a PIN, uh, which is a public infrastructure network node, which looks like um, like a lantern post and it has all the technology and the, and the Wi-Fi and the 5G access points in it. And it has a small data center capacity uh, associated with it, which is probably sub 20 kilowatts, right, in terms of capacity. But then we see the next one is like this micro data center somewhere deployed nearby, but this might be in sizes, you know, up to, let's say, 250 kilowatts. And then we see these kind of core data centers or regional data centers, you know, above 250 kilowatts. And then we see the huge cloud deployments, you know, wherever they are. And I think it depends on the application. And, and I think we are, you know, everybody's talking about these autonomous cars, and I don't want to bring this, you know, here, here up. Um, and at the same time, when we think about, so what's the mission of, like, transportation? Okay, so if we can control our traffic in a way where instead of a human decides when the light turn, this goes back to my computer programming with my Sinclair CX81. I was just so about the, to say the, when the traffic light turns green, you know, we all start accelerating and driving to the next intersection, right? And it's red, and we have to wait. The car idles, you know, and we create uh, emissions. So wouldn't it be better if we can control the flow of the traffic so we can actually continuously move? Uh, it gets us to the destination faster. Um, you know, the, the large um, uh, car companies, they have all initiatives about zero fatalities on the intersections, right? So if we can control and manage the traffic, uh, so now not only becomes it more sustainable, it becomes faster in terms of moving us as people, but it also becomes safer uh, for all the participants. So when I think about those applications, we see that cities are preparing themselves now, deploying you know these kind of intelligent uh, traffic systems uh, in their in their infrastructure in order to manage the traffic. And when I now think autonomous cars and I link them to it, now all of a sudden you know I'm enabling uh, with data at the edge you know like uh, applications and use cases which otherwise would have not been possible. And then, you know, when we think about driving a car, that's only one thing. So well, what about, you know, Uber is talking about it as well, you know, like this, this, this flying cars, you know, so where you actually can, you know, you, you pick one up and you bring them over somewhere else and they will be autonomous, right? I mean, 
we see this in the airline industry already. Like you have already, they have flying taxis. They have drones which are flying people around. So in the Middle East, you can already do it in Dubai. Yeah. Um, of course, they was the first one to do these kind of crazy things because they find somebody who will pay for it. So um, yeah, but, but the point here is, you know, now we are creating enormous amount of data streams. They all need to be coordinated, and they can't just like coordinate it or be coordinated in the cloud with a long latency. So these are applications which require very ultra low latencies in order to make these very fast decisions, you know, for safety and, and other kind of purposes. And in many of those enabling technologies, like those kind of uh, edge data center applications, many of those things we don't even know yet what will happen, you know, what applications, what new, what new use cases are coming along. And when Stephen mentioned about 5G, where let's say 4G was basically connecting eyeballs to computers and gaming and all these things, things, where we think now 5G is actually connecting the machines, right? And this is not going back to Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Like the Terminator scenario, but <laughs> machines are becoming with machine learning more uh, intelligent in order to improve the yield, you know, uh, and many other kind of efficiency improvements. So I think that's where I think those new use cases uh, enabled by the new deployment of technology is really happening. Um, what is 6G gonna bring then? Yeah, you, you talked about space and, you know, 6G, you know, SpaceX and Amazon are already deploying, you know, low orbiting satellite, low orbiting Earth satellites. So there's, there's, a first movement to to deploy enough satellites to be able to supply you know what they were calling you know coverage of you know basic uh, mobile broadband and you could actually buy you know beta you know mobile broadband uh, based you know in space right now it's eighty dollars, but the coverage is is horrible. You only have a coverage, you know, a couple hours a day. Uh, but <laughs> um, the, the tremendous obstacles with deploying, you know, all of these data centers um, that you're going to need for five G, and you know where the you know we talked about the you know the urban areas. The only place you know that the millimeter wave high band five G makes sense is in like machine to machine, like Karsten was talking about in factories, but also in urban areas. Uh, but dealing with the governments and the local jurisdictions is, is you know, is very tough to get all the, the, the cabling, because, you know, 5G is very much, uh, you know, a wired and a wireless technology. It's, you know, bringing fiber, you know, to these, you know, mech data centers. Uh, but if you could just start dropping these data centers everywhere and somehow be able to power them, you know, on site or, you know, as part of their package uh, and have them communicate through through space, you know, the, the, the deployment options, you know, become much, much, much easier and a lot of the obstacles go away. So, you know, there's such a tremendous amount in, of of, you know, government involvement with anything having to do with telco. Um, and that's why, you know, you see, you know, 5G maybe not, you know, developing as fast as, as Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi, you know, is, is done through the IT ecosystem and it's, it's you know, it's not being controlled, but, but telco has much more government involvement. So I think, you know, there's, there's, still, there's still a lot of momentum and people talking about, you know, 5G and the use cases for, you know, the, the, the high band 5G, but it's, it's COVID kind of 
derailed it a little bit because the governments were focused on you know other things obviously and not deploying deploying trials of 5g but we'll we'll see what happens and i think an interesting use case uh karsten was talking about the the traffic in the uk there's actually a uh you know a medical um a trial going on with smart ambulances and the smart ambulances are transmitting pictures and data you know from the patient in the ambulance at the same time it's controlling the traffic patterns you know through the controlling all of the lights so in the future they want to control you know once the cars start talking to each other you know the emergency vehicles are going to have you know they're going to have you know the parting of the seas for the for the uh, emergency vehicles to be able to to make it there and the you know the doctors have all the information they need you know when the patient arrives so it's some interesting stuff yeah i thought when you guys would start talking about uh you know data centers in space i thought like oh so when are we deploying data centers and launching them <laughs> i think a satellite is a data center already if you take it, I mean, if you look at it from a correct perspective, a data a data center for me in space is a satellite dish already, like a massive satellite floating around. That's a data center. Space station is a data center, no? I mean, um, did, I mean, there's a data center on Mars right now, driving around with two little, four little rubber tires, and it can control a helicopter um, where everybody's waiting for, which is hopefully going to happen in a couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> well, but it's a data center yeah. if you take it. If you look at it from a uh, from a perspective, um, which is which is quite, it shows you how um, humanity um, evolved. But um, coming back to your point, Stephen, I, I would also like to say that um, COVID, yes, it had the restrictions, but I also think it accelerated the need for people to have more connectivity. Oh yeah, and I think that's something that because um, people realize the limitations. In terms of people working remote, if the internet connection is not good or um, getting connected with the employees or whatever it is, and now it's like, well, this is, I would say probably in the last 12 months, we have made a progress, a progress which normally takes probably three, four, five years. Um, because basically by gunpoint, people were forced to um, basically um, deliver these deliver these capacities, even for data centers. I mean, a lot of them went on their limits. Um, if you look at day kicks, I mean, in Frankfurt, okay, it was um, the Call of Duty update which came out on PlayStation that um, got this high got this high number for downloads that one night. Um, but it, it just shows you that, um, yeah, that there is limitations, and um, the data industry managed to deal with it. But I'm sure people have a lot of, um, um, how would you say, a, a, a long task list of things that they want to upgrade in their data centers. But um, yeah, I wanted to ask you guys to 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 finish off with. Um, how do you guys see the industry in 10 years and where do you think is it going and how does the data center of the future look like to you? Will it be some normal urban building you walk into? Will it be in nature? Will, will computers be in trees? And um, yeah, how do you guys see it? Um, Stephen, maybe you start. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, 10 years ago, um, and I do a prediction, you know, article every year. But ten years from now, you know, I think you're seeing, I think you're seeing, you know, this, you know, this cloud-first strategy from a lot of companies, and you're seeing the internet giants, as we talked about, deploying at the edge. So I think, you know, there's going to be the emergence of internet giants controlling, 
you know, more and more of the, the digital economy, even, even you know, commerce, tel telco. And I think you're going to start to see more and more standardization of the data. I think, I think that consumers are going to demand that the data and their cloud services that they run uh, can be more portable. So I think there's going to be a lot more cooperation and less lock-in uh, for customers in the future as far as how they're how they're uh, interfacing with technology. And from the data center side, I, you know, we talked about the edge and, and how fast it was growing. I think it's going to, you know, there's going to be you know massive deployments of of the smaller data centers everywhere. Um, and you're going to see them, you know, popping up, you know all over the place. And then like Karsten was saying, it's going to be part of an ecosystem. So lots of dates to the future is a lot of, lot of data centers, a lot more capacity and a lot more uh, interoperability of, of all the data center functionality. Yeah, wow. So the good thing is about when you say like, how do I see it in ten years, right? It's so far out, you know. So like, we can be totally off, right? So versus like, hey, how do you see it next year or in two years, right? So that's a little more scary, right? <laughs> so in ten years, but but I think the, the data center in this ecosystem, right, in this hybrid architecture from cloud services all the way down to the edge. Um, so I think they're number one. They're going to be all software defined. It's going to be software defined operations which is uh, probably to the highest level autonomous uh, through AI engines driven algorithms, you know, that actually help to optimize the operation itself, where the data has been stored, how has it been processed, you know, where is it matched to what's currently we're seeing already, matched to sustainable energy, right? So therefore the, the data centers in 10 years, I think they will be 100% uh, sustainable and not only in terms of the energy consumption, but all the hardware components we put in there, looking at the circular economy to actually recycle them in a in a in a in a responsible kind of way, uh, you know, and reutilizing certain assets. For example, when you talk about lithium-ion batteries, um, you know, to re reuse them when they're no longer to be used or good for the data center application, but then use them somewhere else. Um, so therefore, the this autonomous kind of life, and then back to the to the hybrid architecture. I think you know cloud and edge in 10 years, based on the predictions, 5G will be fully deployed. And when we think about then you know having these new applications, low latencies, higher levels of security. Um, so I think there's uh, there's a, a massive deployment that's coming our way, and um, there are already predictions out there that in 10 years, all the edge data centers which will be there will consume actually more energy than what the hyper, sorry, the cloud data centers, the larger data centers actually will be consuming. So we have to, we have to look at making this transition happening in a sustainable way, um, you know, and having intelligent, autonomous, AI-driven operations to improve overall effectiveness and sustainability. Yeah, well, I think that's great. Um, yeah, Tim, you wanted to add something? Yeah, last one last question because time is of the essence. Um, there's, there's, there's a remark you made, Stephen, in, in, in our email exchange uh, beforehand of this podcast. Um, the question whether um, companies will actually be willing to pay for sustainability. Do you, how do you see that? Yeah, and, and you know, we have a history at Schneider of, 
a, a big commitment to making the most efficient power systems, the most efficient cooling systems. And in, in you know, in, in green has always been, you know, at the top of mind for, for us. But, you know, what we ran, ran into with a lot of our customers is, you know, given the choice, of course, they're going to take the more efficient one, but they weren't really ready to, to ante up for it. But I think with sustainability, things have changed. Um, many, many corporations have carbon commitments, and there's this thing called carbon pricing, which is the value that companies are placing on carbon. And it's much, much easier if you have an established carbon price within your company to justify, uh, you know, paying more for sustainable power and to help you meet your carbon commitments as well. So I think it's really flip-flop. I think there's going to be, you know, more of a focus of, on, on, you know, sustainability first. I mean, I did see a survey uh, yesterday uh, with um, – it was it was IDC Directions, the big the big event, and they had uh, sustainability as a priority for companies, and the, you know it did come in at the bottom end. But I I I think you know for the larger companies, and especially you know in the IT industry, if they would have just you know if they would have just surveyed the IT industry, it would have been you know the opposite. So I think other industries are catching up, and and there's going to be more of a, a commitment to to sustainability and and. Every company is going to have a carbon price. Every single one. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see if, if, if I'm right going going forward. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, Tim. <laughs> Keep on interrupting, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. No, that was really the last question. I just wanted to say, uh, or add rather, it will be also interesting what will happen when we go to the scope free. Um, measurement of carbon output and be actually able to measure it. It's already going to be taxed very soon, I hear, in the European Union. Um, I'm not very sure if that's also, if that also applies for cloud services or if that's just on tangible goods. I'm, I'm not really sure about that. But anyways, yeah, it was great having you on the podcast. And um, Paul, I <laughs> over to you. No, it's fine. Um, over to you, Tim. Um, and, and we just want to give the both of you a chance to leave some words for the future generations to come. And then, um, anyways, we're going to hold you to account what you said, how the data center will look like in 10 years when we will bring you back here on this podcast. But, but, not, but uh, not in 10 years, sooner, of course. Nine and a half, just to make sure we nail it on the dot. But, uh, Carsten, um, any the last words from your end? Um, you know, I'm paraphrasing this right now as some, um, you know, going back to sustainability, um, you know, there's the saying where like only when mankind killed the last animal and cut the tree, we will realize we can't eat money. And I think we're at this point where, you know, we're all fully aware of this, you know, we have to leave, uh, you know, uh, for our next generations, uh, a planet that is better than what we found. And we have to reverse, you know, what we've done. And, uh, I think the good part is that we at Schneider Electric and many of our industry colleagues, because we can't do it ourselves, and many of the customers, to Stephen's point, you know, I think where there's a there's a great um, consensus that we all need to collectively work together to make this happen. So, and then you know, and then the last thing I'm going to say is like think about a data center that is being commenced today. Their typical lifespan of operation is like I don't know 20 plus years. 
So in 10 years, the data center will still pretty much look like, or many of them, like what we are designing today. So we have to take the design and the sustainability aspects into consideration moving forward. Stephen? Yeah, I, 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 think, <laughs> I think we're, you know, we're living in one of the most interesting, you know, times in history. And um, the world is going to be, uh, you know, transformed completely and more automated. And the way that we live our lives uh, is going to be enabled by digital transformation of a lot of industries, a lot of companies, and it's all going to be made possible by, by these data centers. So it's going to be an interesting journey and we'll see how fast, you know, things evolve and which kinds of applications emerge. And it's going to be, you know, absolutely fascinating time over the next three years. I mean, who would have, who would have imagined, you know, 10 years ago, you wouldn't be able to, do anything without, you know, your, you know, your personal, you know, phone device, you know, you know, ordering food or cars, you know, everything that you do today is kind of keeping track of your schedule. And I think it's going to be more and more, more and more automated and more and more um, uh, enabled by uh, voice and, and gestures. Every, the world is going to become much, much more touch free you know, going forward and much more uh, technically advanced and automated at the same time. That's why I'm still looking forward to touching my dogs and petting them. <laughs> well, soon, soon you're going to have uh, some chip that's going to make you imagine that it's happening. But um, th thank you, both of you. It was an absolute pleasure and absolute honor to have the both of you on the podcast. And um, we hope to have you back soon at another point. And... Um, Thank you for your time, and um, I'm sure the listeners are also very grateful. And I'm sure they can feel free to reach out to you guys if they have more questions, absolutely. right? Yep, sure, absolutely. Perfect. Thank you, no Tim, and thanks, Paul, and thanks uh, for you guys doing a great job at Uptime Punk. So, uh, <laughs> thanks. So much to just the the two of you and moving forward. Yeah. Okay. Well, Thank you. We're very happy to be, be to part of this. Thanks. So that was quite an episode. Uh, I think we oh, we went over the 50-minute mark, so apologies to those of our readers who don't have the patience. But I hope the content um, was, um, was, was great for you guys, as great as it was for us. Um, as always, learned uh, a lot. I guess Schneider does wear the title Most Sustainable Company, uh, for no reason um and i'm excited on seeing how they continue to shape this data center and digital infrastructure uh, yeah place um so grateful and hopefully we'll we'll have them back soon uh, i kind of have the impression that they see uh you know the smart city as as one of the main or as the main driver of edge and, and 5g and um, I've always thought it was like, you know, manufacturing. and uh, But it's probably going to be the smart city. That's a question I forgot to ask. What's your take? Take away, Paul. <laughs>
Well, I think it's quite similar, and I think it's quite interesting that they um, all the future aspects, the four pillars they spoke about, and um, yeah, we'd, we would like to get your take on it. And please feel free to comment on it and leave your comments and remarks, and to reach out to them as well because they're really two lovely chaps, as we would like to say in the UK. And yeah, if you guys have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us. Um, you can subscribe Google Podcasts, Apple Music on spotify and if you want to know more about sustainability we have a sustainability net zero summit on the 22nd of april so that's where it's gonna be so you can find it on data center world frankfurt page on linkedin mm -hmm. um or you can also find it in my bio the link is there as well uh, maybe we'll put the link as well in the description of this one and um yeah so hopefully Stephen and carsten will be speaking there as well mm -hmm. um and you guys can ask them some live q a's but yeah um, thank you very much for listening and stay safe and thank you.